For those of you who are new tonight, also for those of you who have very short-term memories, um, we're in verses 8, 9, and 10 of Jude, and I wouldn't expect you to come into a movie 45 minutes late and expect to know what's going on, so this is what happened last time in Jude. He begins to write this story sometime uh, between 68 and 70 A.D. Jude is the brother of Jesus, his half-brother. And Jude, like his siblings, did not become a believer in the resurrected Christ until after the resurrection. Jude did not buy into Jesus' ministry or his teachings until after the resurrection. So he writes this letter sometime between 68 and 70 A.D., of the 25 verses, 19 of them can be found in parallel forms in 2 Peter, where Peter uses future tense to describe the impending threat of the false teachers. Jude uses present tense, which leads many to the conclusion, at least so much in its functionality, that Jude is operating as a sequel to 2 Peter. Jude begins this letter, and he wants his audience to know in the greeting that their identity their status in this world, it doesn't come from who they are. It doesn't come from what they wear, how good-looking they are, how talented. It doesn't come from even the bad things they've done. It comes because of what Christ has done for them. Jude identifies himself as a slave of Christ. I'm a slave of Christ. Who Jude is, what his status is, the believers, who their identity is, it's in the one who owns them, their master and Lord Jesus Christ. And then he explains this a little bit more. He says, to those who are called, to those who are beloved, to those who are kept for. I love this greeting. This is awesome. I mean, just awesome. I've, I've got to hear this sermon uh, a couple times. I got to preach it to some soldiers today and yesterday. Um, love this. <coughs> you are called, believers. You are specially chosen by God. Do you not know that? To illustrate this, John 6, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up in the last day. You know that? You can't come to Jesus, at least not in a saving way, unless the Father draws you. The Father doesn't draw you. You can't come to Jesus, at least not in a saving way. But Jude writes to these believers who have been called, who are beloved. And this isn't, like I said, for the sake of redundancy, as much as it is for us to grab onto this truth. We're beloved. That love to say Jesus loves you, it's not just something that occurs in the present moment. Beloved in the original language conveys this idea that we were loved in the past with love that is felt in the present with the expectation that it goes to the future. Or as a wise man, as, or as a wise man once said, who we'll call Paul because that happens to be his name, in the first chapter of Ephesians, this idea that we're beloved. Verse 4, even as he, God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. It's one thing to say Jesus loves you, it's another to understand that you're beloved. You're a son and daughter of the king. To think that like he had you in mind before he even made the world. That's what Paul says. But if that doesn't get you excited about this book, I don't know what will. He hasn't even made the world yet, and he's thinking about you. He's thinking about you. That's cool. And oh, by the way, you're kept for. 
you're kept for. He wants his audience to know they're secure. And people all the time struggle with this. Am I secure? You know, I don't know. I'm feeling like I'm a Christian one day and not a Christian the next. Like, I don't know. Like, and that's a legitimate struggle that people have. And he says, you're kept for. In the original language, this word means to be under guard. Now, I know I'm not talking to a military crowd here. Though I know we've got some soldiers and former Marines and sailors and soon-to-be airmen in here right now. But imagine if the 75th Ranger Regiment was pulling... The whole regiment was pulling 360-degree security around this building. You might feel pretty secure. But imagine knowing that you're under guard by the 75th Ranger Battalion, 75th Ranger Regiment. Imagine that you're secure, you're (coughs) under guard by the king of the universe who spoke the world into existence. Oh, by the way, then he says, may mercy... Love and peace be multiplied into you. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. See, the idea of mercy, peace, and love, they're not abstract ideas. I always like to say this because we throw these words around and sometimes they just, it seems like you can't touch them, right? You see, the reason these, these words matter and you, you can really touch them is because of everything Jude's been saying that I've been retelling to you the last two minutes. Those realities can be experienced because Jude's status as well as his believer's status is secure in the one who is his owner. So Jude starts writing this letter. He's going to set off in verse 3. He says, I'm going to write about our common salvation. Something changes. Word reaches him. Like he, he literally abruptly stops writing about one thing to write about another. Word comes to him. He realizes there is a very dangerous and real threat. There are spiritual pretenders. Jude says there, uh, these certain people have crept into the church unnoticed. Uh, A.K.A. They're spiritual pretenders. They've infiltrated the church. Jude essentially rings the call to arms. He wants believers to be willing to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. I love that phrase, once for all delivered to the saints. I.e., it doesn't need an iOS software update, right? It doesn't need a revision, right? This book is sufficient. It's good to go. And people all the time say, that's not the case. Pastors say, well, you know, my views on certain issues are evolving as many pastors Well, one pastor in particular said that over the summer. This call to faith. He wants believers to be willing to contend for the faith. These spiritual pretenders infiltrated the church. And they are essentially, he calls them ungodly, because they pervert God's grace into sensuality. This is what they're doing. Um, They're claiming to be Christians and borrowing certain aspects of Christianity while denying the other things. While denying and rejecting other truths found in the Bible. Um... They're doing things, and then they're justifying their sin. It's not even like they know. It's not even like, oh, man, I know I shouldn't be doing this. It's like, whatever, it's okay. I'm okay with it. God's okay with it. And justifying it so they can continue in their lifestyle. That's, that's exactly what these spiritual pretenders are doing and quite possibly trying to get other people to be okay with it or maybe even partake in it with them. That's what they're, what they're doing. And Jude was really clear, as we saw last week. He gives three different stories, verses 5, 6, and 7. He says, I want to tell you something, okay? I'm writing to you believers, I want to tell you something, okay? Because I think Jude knows that potentially some of his readers might be tempted to go along with what the masses say. It's tempting, right? You know, when everybody has a certain filter on their Facebook, I think you know what I'm talking about. It's like, whoa, I guess everybody thinks this way. Maybe there's something wrong with with how I'm thinking. And and it starts messing with you a little bit. People start giving you a hard time. Pastor Dane shared about his daughter. 
So, so Jude says, listen, I, I, I got this. I know some of you guys might be maybe tempted to go along with them. Let me just be really clear here. These spiritual pretenders, uh, they will be judged. They will be ultimately destroyed. And let me to remind you of three different stories. First, the nation of Israel. God brought them out of Egypt. Oh, that's so nice. And then one day he killed 20,000 of them. You know that? First Corinthians 10, read that. It tells you about that. If you've you never heard that before. He rescues the people out of slavery. You know the story of Moses. And then on another occasion, shortly after he rescued them out of slavery, he killed 20,000 of his own people because they did not believe. See, God takes sin very seriously. And we should too. Then he tells a story about the apostate angels. They did not stay within their own position of authority. The great coup in heaven, which is recorded in the prophet Isaiah's writings, the 14th chapter, beginning in the 12th verse. And basically he says, Here, Satan... His demons tried to overthrow our great God and King. Their rebellion was crushed. They were not spared. And they are kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness. Then he tells one last story about Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, you know about that? Yeah, they were all destroyed. What's his point? In all three stories, none of them escaped God's judgment. None of them escaped God's punishment. They were all dealt with. Therefore, it stands to reason the spiritual pretenders who have infiltrated your church, they will not escape God's judgment either. They will be destroyed. And for any of those of you who are tempted to not do the things I'm saying, that are tempted to just go along with them, be careful. Their end will be like those whom were just mentioned. God takes sin very seriously, which sets up for verse 8. Now you're caught up to speed. Verse 8 says this, Yet in like manner these people... Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. The phrase, yet in like manner, it's an important transitional phrase because it's going to further unlock the significance of the previous things that we've been talking about in verses 1 to 7. He's going to take us deeper into this ongoing story. And so Jude accuses these people of doing something. It's a strange thing to accuse people of, right? You might say, man, yeah, I, I know you're lying. Man, I know you're looking at things you shouldn't be looking at the computer. Man, I know that you're relying on your dreams. Like, you don't really hear that these days. It's a strange thing to say. So I want to make sure that we understand what's happening. They are relying on their dreams. What these spiritual pretenders who've infiltrated the church are doing is that they are claiming their dreams as authoritative. They are claiming their dreams as an authoritative substitute for this book. For the truths of God. They are substituting their own counterfeit authority. Um, they are continuing in their lifestyle. They claim their dreams are authoritative. It's like this. They're, they're having a conversation and someone says, You know, scripture says you're not supposed to do this. Oh, that's okay because I had a dream and God revealed to me that it was okay. That's, that's what they're saying. So they don't have to actually deal with it. They don't have to repent. They can just justify. Oh, it's okay that I'm doing that. God, God understands. Are you like them? Do, 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 do you do that? Maybe you say, well, you don't rely on your dreams, but you justify certain things in your life? Even right now. I'm sure some of you all make you feel really uncomfortable right now. Good. That's what they're doing. Jude thinks it's serious enough to call them out. So that's what I'm doing. 
Then he says they defile the flesh. The word defile, it it means to pollute in the original language or to contaminate. To pollute, to contaminate. That's what it means. They defile the flesh. And the word flesh in the original language, when coupled with the word defile, it refers, it refers back to some type of sexual sin, some type of physical defilement. That's the second charge. And I just realized, I was looking at my notes, I guess I don't have the sermon as memorized as I thought. I want to go back to the, the fact that they are um, relying on their dreams. Just one second. Because people say, well, Joe, aren't there times in the Bible where there's legit dreams? And I would say, well, yeah. Yeah, Scripture does mention legit dreams that people have. Joel 2, Matthew 1, Acts 2. But, I want to be clear here. But the mere claim to have a dream from the Lord does not validate Whatever one might say. Just because you, someone says, oh, I had a dream from God. It doesn't validate whatever one might say. You say, well, Joe, is there, is there a way to know whether it's a legit, legit dream or whether I just had bad pizza the night before? Is there, is there a way? <laughs> well, I'd say, yeah. Like, my really short answer is, if someone comes to you and says they have a dream and God revealed something to them, I would say, first of all, does it contradict this book? Well, it's okay that I'm doing this. Mm, nope, don't think so. That's the short answer, how you can know. Does it contradict this book? If it does, it's not legit. Short answer. So we jump back forward. We, we were talking about defiling the flesh. Defile means to corrupt, to p- pollute. Um, when coupled with the word defile and flesh, those two words, it refers to a physical defilement, sexual sin. So there's a, a little eye-opening thing What's happening here. Of course, nothing new. Why? Because we already know back in verse 4, he says, they're ungodly, they pervert God's grace into sensuality. So the fact that he's saying, once again now, that they are defiling the flesh, nothing new. He already said it in verse 4. And then he says they reject authority. Here's the second charge. They reject authority. People say, well, what authority are they rejecting? Human authority? Mm, I don't think so. Maybe church authority. Maybe, but probably not. Um, and the reason I say that is because the, original, the, the word in the original language that means authority, it, it never has that meaning in the, in the Septuagint. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, never has that type of uh, meaning, or even in the New Testament. And we would expect to see this word for authority in the plural if it was referring to human authority or church authority. No, what he means here when he says they reject authority, he means the authority of God. That's the authority that they're rejecting. And of course, once again, nothing new because here he says back in verse 4, they deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. You see, they weren't denying Jesus as Lord and master in a theological way. They would affirm, oh yeah, that's true. They're denying him and rejecting his authority in a practical way. Practical. They affirm it theologically. They deny it practically. How do I illustrate this? Titus 1.16. Paul says they profess to know God. But they deny God by their actions. That's what they say. They reject authority. They reject authority. They reject the authority of God. And people come and they say. Well can you give me something here? Like like. They say, well, Joe, what do you think about this issue? My answer usually is, I say, what do you think about this? I say, well, it doesn't really matter what I think. I'm not authoritative. What does the Bible say? Yeah, good answer. Okay. They reject that authority. They reject that authority. And, oh, by the way, 
Third thing, third charge, they blaspheme the glorious ones. Perhaps the most provocative verse in all of Jude. They blaspheme the glorious ones. This is what blaspheme means. Modern day paraphrase, they talk trash. Think you guys know what talk trash means? Okay, blaspheme, they're insulting, slandering, they're talking trash about the glorious ones. Which brings the question is, is, okay, well that's good, but what or who are the glorious ones? Let's look at that. Some people would say, well, maybe the glorious one refers to the apostles or, or famous people they're talking trash about. Well, possibly, but probably not. Because the Greek Old Testament never translates that Hebrew terminology with the Greek term used here. Glorious, doxas, it never uses it like that. So it's unlikely that it's referring to famous people. What most likely he's referring to are angelic beings. The early church father, Clement of Alexandria, that's exactly how he interpreted this passage. Glorious ones referring to angelic beings. It was a usage found not only in the Dead Sea Scrolls, but also other apocalyptic literature used in such a way. Now, it's a strange thing to think that they were blaspheming the glorious ones. If Clement of Alexandria is right, which I, I mean, I think very much the, the case is very strong. But why would they do that? Why would they blaspheme angelic beings? It's not something you typically hear today about people when they do things they're not supposed to. Blaspheming, talking trash about angelic beings, and also... Are these good or bad angelic beings? Are they good angels or are they bad, fallen, sinful angels? Are they demons? Hmm. This just got a lot more interesting. People would argue, those who argue that they were evil angels, would argue that they they were evil angels and that these spiritual pretenders were slandering them to show potentially their superiority to them and their freedom from them. And in a like manner, those who argue that these were good angelic beings would argue that they were trying to express their superiority as enlightened spiritual humans to such beings. Now there's one thing here that begins to emerge from the page right now. You say, is there an element of maybe pride there? You nailed it. Yeah, probably. Most probably. Hang on to that, okay? Because we're really going unpacking different, different layers here. And uh, I don't want you to miss that big issue there. And people say, well, Joe, which position do you like? And I say, well, honestly, if you asked me five days ago, I had like a foot in this camp. And I probably had a foot in this camp. I was like, oh, man. Like, I was reading and researching and reading all these articles. I was like, whoa. I'm like, I don't know which one to pick. So I'll tell you what. You say, which one do you want to pick? I'd say pick whatever one you like the better. But these were essentially the arguments. Those who argue that they were evil angels... Their best argument is contextually, this fits together very well. And what we're always after when interpreting the scriptures is context, context, context. It's oftentimes how the the previous verse will really unpack the current verse and how the following verse also has a way of shedding light on this as the author's thought progression continues. And in the very next verse, he speaks about the archangel Michael in this verbal discussion with Satan. And Michael does not presume to offer a blasphemous judgment against Satan. So the reasoning would be like such. If Michael, an archangel, someone of high rank, 
does not even presume to issue a blasphemous judgment, then you, spiritual pretenders, have no business whatsoever doing that. Contextually, it fits very nicely. Just layer after layer, very nicely. The argument that they're good angels stems from the fact that this word glorious, glorious ones, the word's doxa, nowhere in Jewish or Christian literature is the word ever used to describe evil angels. Oh, what am I to do? Good arguments. And they say, all right, Joe, you have to pick one. If I had to pick one, I would be swayed to this camp because I believe it's a lot more plausible for Jude to be the first author in Scripture to use this word in referring to evil angels than to somehow try and reorder the context. I think the context fits together so well, and Jude's thought progression seems to be like this. You are at the height of arrogance and pride, you spiritual pretenders. Even the, even the archangel Michael didn't, didn't so much as talk trash about Satan. And yet you're doing the very things to show off your superiority to these glorious ones. That's the peak of arrogance. That's the peak of pride. And so in the very next verse, he says this. Verse 9. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. The death of Moses can be found in a passage in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 34, 1 to 12, I believe. Oh yeah, I got it right. <laughs> this is like my backup in case I forget stuff in here. The death of Moses, you read Deuteronomy 34, 1 to 12, tells you about his death and his burial. The interesting thing about that is, the story that Jude tells us in verse 9, it's found nowhere in there. He cites a story that does not come from the Bible. The story is generally held to come from an extra-biblical uh, book titled <laughs> The Assumption of Moses, of which we no longer possess the original version. And in this story, we see, I guess you might say, in modern day, we see the extended cut. We see this, this scene that that didn't make it into Deuteronomy 34, 1 to 12. He shows us this, this, little, this little scene, this little verse 9. And in the assumption of Moses, the argument is this. Satan, in his accusatory, character-like way, says, you can't have the bones of Moses because he killed an Egyptian and he doesn't deserve an honorable burial. Michael says, the Lord rebuke you, he leaves. That is the, the picture that Jude retells in verse 9. And some Christians would say, that's kind of weird. Like, should we ignore verse 9? That's kind of, I mean, he, he tells, I mean, is that even biblical? Because he uses a piece of literature that's not even in scripture. Don't worry. It's okay. Jude knows what he's doing. In fact, if it makes you feel any better, there's a guy named Paul. He's kind of a big deal. Wrote 13 letters in the New Testament. He did the same thing on multiple occasions. You know that? In fact, Paul cites Greek poets and other extra-biblical sayings without suggesting that the entire work that he was citing was authoritative or scriptural. But he does it on numerous occasions. In Acts 17.28, in 1 Corinthians 15.33, in Titus 1.12. Jude doesn't intend to put an authoritative scriptural stamp of approval on this 
work that he is citing, this assumption of Moses, simply because he's citing it. He does it because he wants to show us something. He wants to show us that Michael, Michael gets something that the spiritual pretenders don't. Michael understood that he was not to act beyond God's prescribed limits. God has prescribed limits for all of us. And these spiritual pretenders, they are going way beyond those limits all the time. Oh, they defiled the flesh. Oh, they pervert God's grace into sensuality. Oh, they blaspheme the glorious ones. And on and on and on. Michael understands that he is to remain and not act beyond God's prescribed limits. Which, of course, the spiritual pretenders completely contrast that. Michael's what right looks like. The spiritual pretenders are not what right looks like. And he says, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. Here's Satan doing his old great accusatory thing. You can't take his body. He killed an Egyptian. Look at this. I have it on record right there. Do you see that? What are you going to do? You can't take it, Michael. What are you going to do? He did that. Can you deny it? Can you deny it? Kind of like Michael's like, well, no. Oh, and he cuts him off before. I had just imagined this conversation. And he just says, Lord, rebuke you. See, it's, it's not Michael's first rodeo here. He's seen this song and dance before. In fact, in Zechariah chapter 3, a very similar situation happens involving Satan once again doing his old accusatory thing. In this, Zechariah has his vision. The high priest Joshua standing before the Lord wearing these filthy clothes, illustrating of the sin. And you might think, because he's wearing these filthy clothes, that Satan has a case. But the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord, says, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord rebuke you. This isn't so much as a verbal slap in the face, like, boom! Like, what? And everyone's like, what? Oh my goodness! And he, he, man, he owned him! It's so much more than that, actually. It's so much more than that because Michael's response to Satan's accusation is so that Moses would be vindicated. <coughs> Michael is confident that Moses would receive forgiveness by God's word, even though he was guilty of killing the Egyptian. You see, I don't, I don't know if you've ever thought about it like this. Like the, the great power that Satan has is his ability to go before the judge of the universe and accuse us because he knows that God is a just judge. He knows God is a God who takes sin seriously. He knows that God can pardon no man based on that man's actions, that there is a punishment, and that punishment is hell for all of eternity. And so he goes before the God of the universe all day long and says, hey, look at what he did. Look at what he did. Look at this. Look at this. You can't deny it. Look, here's the record. It's in writing. There it is. There it is. Do you see that? What are you going to do? And Michael says, the Lord rebuke you. He, he's confident that Moses will be vindicated, that he will be forgiven. You know, oftentimes when people think of the cross, they only think, they think, oh yeah, I get to go to heaven. It's so much more than that. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, he describes what God did to the demons when his son died on the cross. And I quote, the record of debt that stood against us, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You see, 
He disarmed them. How did he do that? Because he took the record of debt that stood against all of us believers and he nailed it to the cross so that when Satan comes and accuses us before God and says, look at this and look at this, I have a record. And he looks at it and he says, oh no, that's been paid for. Amen. Sorry, that, that's been paid for. That's been paid for by my son. Uh, next. Oh, that's, oh, oh, Moses killed him? Yeah, that's, that's been paid for. Let's see, Joshua the high priest? Yep, that's paid for too. Drives him crazy, right? Here he is trying to accuse us, and that's what the cross did. Like the cross like stripped him of his six shooters, and he can't accuse us, right? He can't bring the case before the judge of the universe. It's, it's done. There's nothing he's got that record. It drives him crazy. And, and Michael knows that, and he says, the Lord rebuke you. The interesting thing is, in this case, like with... with Moses and the bones and Satan accusing. Interesting thing, the cross hasn't even happened yet. Maybe we can talk about that in small group. How do you make sense of that? Like the cross hasn't even taken place yet in that story. And yet Moses, Moses is expected, at least on the part of Michael, to be completely vindicated, and it hasn't even yet taken place. See, that's the amazing thing about what the cross did. It's not just you can go to heaven. It's just that there was legal demands on your life. You broke God's law. You violated God's law. There's a punishment. He's a just judge. He takes sin seriously. He has to send you to hell, and then that debt's paid. Boom, it's gone according to Colossians 2. It's stripped away. Oh, and Satan hates that. It's good news for those of us who are called. It's great news for those of us who are beloved. It's amazing news for those of us who have been kept for Jesus Christ. But good news meets bad news in verse 10. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. Remember, they're blaspheming the glorious ones. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals... Dumb, they, they can't talk. He compares them to unreasoning animals. All that they understand instinctively. All they understand is sin. That's all they understand is sin. Is sin. That's their appetite, sin. Good news meets bad news because when these spiritual pretenders and those who go along with them, when they stand before the judge of the universe and he looks at the court case... He has to render a guilty verdict. Unlike those who are called, who are beloved, who are kept for, he can't say case dismissed. That's the reality in this world. Yes, God's a loving God, but he's a just God. And that's why the punishment for sin is death in hell for all of eternity. And I'd stop and I'd pause and I'd just get you to think about this. Who are you more like? Some of you, this is really good news and a refreshing reminder. And for others of you, it's scary to even contemplate which group you might be in. The believers who are called, beloved, and kept for, or are you more like the spiritual pretenders who claim to be Christians, who affirm theologically accurate things, but you're doing your own thing, you're playing your own game, you reject God's word. You ignore the parts of the Bible that you don't like. Dangerous, scary, but the great news is there's still breath in your lungs right now. 
And good news is not that far away for those who place their faith in Jesus, for those of you who repent of your sins. I use the word repent. I always emphasize it. It doesn't mean you say you're sorry. It doesn't mean you cry because I yelled. It means you turn. Military terms, it's an about face. you literally a turning from your sin. Where you say, I, I know I need to stop this. I've been just kind of justifying my sin. I've been coasting. I've been ignoring these parts. I haven't want to come and into terms with what's going on in my life because I want to keep claiming to be a Christian like these spiritual pretenders. I want to keep doing my own thing. And now I realize, man, I might be in some deep trouble because I'm more like these spiritual pretenders who will experience the wrath of an almighty God. Whew, that's scary. But it doesn't have to be. I want the band to come. And I'd like to pray for you. Lord, we love you. And you're awesome. And uh, I thank you for Jude. Because he seems really cool. And I'm thank I thank you so much for his word. And I pray for those of us in here who are like these spiritual pretenders. That we would stop right now. That we would get our crap together right now. And we would stop, stop making a mockery of your word. Stop rejecting the parts of the Bible that don't fit within our lifestyle. That we would repent. That you might grant us, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25, that you might grant us a heart of repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. That's what I pray. May we be encouraged. And may our joy in you increase. In your name we pray, amen.